Gracious Father, we thank you again for the privilege to meet. We thank you for your word. Uh, we ask this morning that you minister to us sweetly through your word, that we may know you more fully, and that we may worship you well, and that our intimacy with you may increase and overflow in great joy and in great trust and obedience. We confess that uh, we are frail, and we are prone to wander, and we struggle with sin, uh, and we lay our, our sins before you, knowing that they are covered fully and eternally in Christ, yet as we tried this fallen world, we know that our sins do create a barrier in terms of our intimacy, and they grieve your soul, and so we ask that you would hear our hearts cry, that we would know you and that we would walk in righteousness. We prayed for greater intimacy and restoration where we have uh, sinned against you, our great God, and an encouragement of heart to um, walk in righteousness and reflect your worth, your majesty, and your glory into this world. Uh, and to gird us, give us wisdom and boldness and strength uh, that we might persevere well. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we'll pick up in Acts chapter 27. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 26. Again, we're in a section of Acts where, where we're winding up here. And the narrative is in really big, large chunks. So we're going to try to take the first 26 verses of that uh, uh, Acts chapter 27 and see how we do there. The title of this morning's message is Paul in Peril at Sea. And again, we're looking at historical narrative in terms of the genre here. Uh, so it's, it's quite a bit to uh, navigate, and that's no pun intended there. We're going to look at a lot of uh, nautical language in this portion of Scripture. So we're going to track Paul ultimately to his uh, the, the wreckage at sea there on his way to Italy, um, ultimately to Rome. So we'll try to track it. And uh, our technological guru, Jesse, is going to maybe see if we can interplay a map here with, uh, with the points and see how that goes. There's a lot of uh, stops on the way and Maybe a visual will help you. I hope so. I'm going to read through this section first, and then we'll try to work our way through and uh, track with it and see if we can at least uh, cover this, this uh, section here from 1 to 26. So if you will join me there, beginning in chapter 27. And this is Paul on his way to Rome. Remember now he's made the request to Rome, and um, Felix ultimately now has sent him to Rome. And so... Now they're going to make that, they're going to set sail on that voyage um, here beginning in chapter 27. So look at me there in verse 1. It says, when it was decided that we would sail to Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan co cohort named Julius. And embarking, <clears throat> and embarking in an Adiron, Adiron, I'm sorry, Adamiatan ship, which was about to sail to the region along the coast of Asia. Now we're talking about Asia Minor. So this is going to coast along the, the crest there of Asia Minor. We put out the sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And note there the we, who is that? You see that? So we run into the we again here. When we see the we, who, who are we talking about? What's the text telling us there? Who is that? That's Luke, okay? So Luke is reunited with Paul here again for the first time since chapter 21. That's the last time we, uh, uh, that, that Luke was reunited with Paul. So he's back with him. They're going to take the journey. So uh, Aristarchus and Paul are joined, or excuse me, and Luke are joining Paul on his journey to Rome. So just make note of that there. Verse 3. The next day we put out at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go uh, to his friends and receive care. From there, we put out the sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra and Lycia. 
There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us aboard it. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty, had arrived off Nidus. Since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Samon. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lacey. When considerable time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceived that the voyage will certainly be with uh, damage and great loss, not only to the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul, because the harbor was not suitable for wintering. The majority reached a decision to put out the sea from there. If somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor off Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. Here's one of those major buts in Scripture. Verse 14, but before very long, there rushed down the land a violent wind called a Uraquilla. And when the ship was caught in it, they could not face the wind. They gave way to it. We gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along, running under shelter of a small island called Claudia. Uh, we scarcely we were scarcely able to get the ship's board under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables to un- uh, and undergirding the ship, fearing that they might run aground on the shallows. Sartus. They let down the sea anchor and this way letting them be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle over the board with their own hands. Since neither sun nor star, stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us. From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. When they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have have followed my advice and not to set sail from Crete and incur this damaging loss. Yet, now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. Well, that's comforting, right? For this very night, an angel of the Lord, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and before C- and, and, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told but we must run aground on a certain island. Now, that is a lot of traveling. That's quite a voyage. So we'll see if we can work our way through this. And really, this has application. In terms of application, it's kind of heavy loaded at the end. And so we'll try to address really what's going on in Paul's life and particularly how Paul at that moment where it seems all is lost, then God takes his man and stands Paul up and delivers truth to all around him. So, again, we're tracking the character of Paul here. We're tracking, really, Paul and his uh, evangelistic zeal all the way to the end of the time that God will use him here on earth. And that's been a running theme for us. We, like Paul, are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, again, it's worth reiterating, Paul has a unique role. Paul had a unique calling. There is, Paul is an apostle of Christ. We are not. Paul was point man apostle to the Gentiles when the gospel was moving from the, the, the Jewish world into the Gentile world. This is a unique place and time, a unique Christian. 
Paul was gifted in very unique ways. But the power that resided within Paul. And again, you're looking at the apostolic age where there is still miraculous work going on. Actively in the hands of God's vessels, particularly the apostles of Christ. You're looking at men supernaturally being bore along by the Holy Spirit to fill out, to fill out scripture in writing the New Testament. This is a unique setting. So this is an apostolic age and it's unique. We've, we've uh, uh, covered that, but it's just worth, we have to undergird that in what we're seeing here because we don't want to get lost in that. That's true. But the power of the Holy Spirit that indwelt Paul is the same power and the same Holy Spirit that indwells you. And the Holy Spirit has preserved this scripture for us today. That we might learn from Paul and what God has done through Paul and where it equates. Then we go, therefore, trusting God and live likewise. So we're tracking the man's character. We're tracking his obedience. We're tracking his trust in Christ. We're tracking his evangelistic zeal to go forth and carry the gospel. We're tracking his willingness to sacrifice for those around him. We're tracking his willingness to put himself in peril because his heart aches for the lost around him. So these are the things that we want to hold in place as we look at this journey because, man, we can get lost in just the, just the void itself. And again, we're, we're looking at uh, a span here. So we're going to track this. We're looking at a span from 59 to 60 at sea. Uh, so several months at sea uh, during all this. So it, it, it's quite a span here. We're covering a lot, I know. So I don't, I don't want to... Uh, lose us in, in the bigness of the voyage. But tune your hearts to Paul in the moment, in the place, in the circumstance, in all the struggles. Paul never fails to get to the plate, y'all. When it's time for Paul to step up and lead, to step up and speak, He's prepared. He's ready to go. And he's going to have a moment. It's going to, it's going to culminate. And it's going to, it's going to culminate at, at, at a very difficult time with much suffering and much struggle. But there will come a time, as there always comes for us, there's moments in our life, just like Paul where God has placed us and God may have worked us through some very difficult issues of life, some struggles, some, some difficult relationship building, some painful things. But there will be a moment where God intends to bring us forth to speak the gospel. And we do well to learn from Paul because he's always ready to go. He's looking for that opportunity to communicate the gospel in the most poignant, powerful way he can. Now, the voyage itself, the language here, the nautical language, is very vivid. It's meticulous. It's accurate. And it's an eyewitness account, right? So who's pinning acts here? Who's writing acts? Luke. Who's rejoined Paul here on the journey? Every time we see we and acts, you know, that's it. Luke is rejoined, right? So Luke's with him. And Aristarchus, another brother, they've gone along with him. So that's pretty cool. I don't know exactly why, because uh, this is very unique. Paul wouldn't be allowed to take people with him. Actually, under Roman law, the only way Paul could take someone with him as a prisoner, the only way he could have someone with him is if they were his slaves. So a Roman citizen who was being taken uh, uh, as a prisoner or, or on a voyage as a prisoner could only have someone with him if they were slaves. Um, so they, they, this is unique. I, I don't know exactly what has happened here. My, my guess would be that it's, it's Festus. He knows Paul's innocent, and I, I believe something has just touched his heart a bit. And these brothers want to go with Paul. 
because they love them. This is not, you know, this is not uh, an easy voyage. This is that they're signing up for a difficult time, even if things went really well. And there's no guarantees in Rome. But these brothers loved him. That's something about Paul and his leadership for them. They love him. So it says something about the brotherhood. You know, uh, Jesse was speaking much about that this morning in our morning study. It says something about our brotherhood. You see these men. They're willing to put their comfort and ease of life aside and go with Paul just to be with him because he's their brother. They want to encourage him. They want to be there. So they've set aside a lot of ease and comfort, and they're going on this difficult journey, which has a lot of open-ended uncertainty to it. And it's just out of love. So it's a pretty cool thing here. So we see uh, that gives Luke, though, uh, as we get to see it looking back, that gives Luke a lot of detail. So he has an eyewitness account here detailing these events and the perils of the passage at sea there. And we see the providence of God on full display. I mean, the percentage of this vessel ending up where it does, ultimately, and, that, and that's still to come. We'll, we'll have to get to that later. Is minuscule. It's unique. There's a personal touch of God bringing this to bear all along the way. He has his men on that ship. Because of that, the sovereign hand of God will bring this this vessel all the way through, or these men, they'll lose the vessel ultimately, these men all the way through exactly where he intends, exactly where he intends. So you see the profound hand of a sovereign God working this out. The providence of God at work here is just glorious. And we see the character of Paul. That's what I want us to try to lay hold of here, kind of heavy loaded at the end in terms of when we look at application, just the character of Paul. Um, He's in the fire of some extreme circumstances, and he's a man here of prolonged crisis. Now, the, the, the shipwreck, that would be enough for a lifetime, right? And Paul's already had a couple. Uh, nothing this prolonged and perilous. But still, when you're, when you have, you know, I've never been in a shipwreck. Uh, it's, you know, I've been a little too far out at sea where I just couldn't see land, and it made me nervous. So, you know, I don't know what it would be like to be stuck in that water. Um, Paul's been through a couple already. This this is grueling, and uh, it only get you know we're running into it. Paul's gonna run into a lot of stuff before he gets wrong. It's just one perilous event after another. It's just a prolonged crisis, and Paul, we find him in this always calm, courageous, confident, all the way through. He's a man of God. God does that work in his men and his women. God does that work in his people. And Christ gives him this calmness, this courage, this confidence. He's confident to the glory of God in Christ alone. So he's a leader. We're going to see Paul. He's a leader. He leads. When uh, all the other men begin to fade away and give up hope, Paul's leader. You're looking at Paul starts out as a prisoner. And before the thing's over, Paul's leading the whole crew. He's a leader because his heart's not so much set on leading. His heart is set on carrying the gospel. And God brings him to positions of leadership and influence because he's fearless. And he carries truth. He has something of value to communicate to all those around him. Does that ring a bell? Every Christian, I mean, some people have more leadership qualities, if you will, however we would equate that. That may be the case. But at some point when it gets down to the bottom line, we are to be leaders in our community because we have the truth to carry to them. That's what makes Paul a leader. And he flat out leads. So it's godly leadership in the midst of crisis. And when your neighbors, when your family, when your extended family, when your friends, when your co-workers feel the crisis of the culture all around, that's where your light shines all the brighter. You have truth to carry. All Christians should be leaders in crisis because we have the answer 
to all of life. So that brings us to Paul's voice there in verses 1 through 8. So let's try to work our way through this here, uh, at least get uh, a crack at it, kind of a running start. So in verse 1 there, it says they've decided to take Paul to ultimately to Rome, to Italy there. And they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion, so that's uh, named Augustine. So that's a commander of the Roman army. Uh, he's a commander over 100 men. That's what a centurion is. But he's uh, part of this cohort, the Augustine cohort, and his name is Julius. So the Augustine cohort is just a unique uh, little part of uh, uh, soldiers in the Roman army. So this is a unique, um, I think it's about 600 of them altogether, maybe a little over. And so they're portioned off here. There's probably, uh, we don't know how many is here. There's at least 100, and we have several prisoners. We don't have any prisoners with Paul. And now we, we know that uh, Luke and Aristarchus is doing Paul. Ultimately, we'll get a number later when they jump on another ship. Um, but you're looking at at least uh, a commander and 100 soldiers and however many prisoners we have on the ship. And so the Augustan cohort, they were um, this unique uh, soldiers that had a primary role in transporting grain. So grain was a primary food source for all the Roman Empire, and they were primarily uh, in control of that, of, of transporting. So they were, they were seafaring soldiers, transporting grain and protecting that and, and uh, navigating that and working with um, independent uh, owners of ships and that sort of thing. So they were in charge of all that. Over time, they also began to, to uh, take on the responsibility of transporting prisoners throughout the Roman Empire. So that's that's what's being said there. And Julius is a commander here of this of these particular soldiers from that uh, cohort. And so they they take they embark on a type of ship. This Adamiatan ship is a type of ship, and it's uh, built and primarily uh, known to be a type of ship that's made there in Troas and Pergamon. So that's around that area of Caesarea. So this is a smaller vessel, and what these, these vessels do, they'll kind of uh, 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 hug the coastline and stay close to the coast. It's a smaller ship. And then ultimately what they would do is when they're trying to get transports, it was very common practice. They try to scoot along, uh, scoot along the different uh, the coast, going to different ports, and ultimately try to catch a larger ship, which was typically one of these large grain ships, and then hop hop on board there and take a and take a journey across to Rome in the larger ship. So this first ship could not make that kind of journey; it's not not large enough and uh, would not be able to make the trip. So this was typical. It's kind of like taking a little taxi cab up to a couple of places to try to find a larger taxi bus and put everybody on and then make a longer journey. So that's what they're doing here. And then we track um, Julius, and he's just going to move them up the coast. So he leaves, uh, it says there, that they were about to sail along the, the coast of Asia there in, in verse 2. Now, that's Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And again, uh, they're working up the coast, and they're going to come off to the kind of a, what, what, uh, or jettison out at the end and work their way over across, ultimately trying to, trying to reach Rome. They'll go uh, under Greece and trying to reach over towards Sicily and Rome. So that's the direction they're trying to head. So this is uh, skirting the coastline here. And then... They put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, and we know Luke is there as well. Verse 3, on the next day, we put in at Sidon. Now, so they've come up from Caesarea, and again, they're just going up the coast, and now they're going to put out from Sidon and try to skirt the coast a little more, looking for a larger vessel. That's, that's uh, uh, the common practice. And so there, though, when they stopped and they hit port at Sidon, it says that Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go into his friends and receive care. Now, apparently, Paul was ill. It doesn't give us the sickness, but we know Paul has been battered from pillar to post for years now. He's been two years really in kind of a plush uh, area there in Caesarea. He was staying in the, in the palace. But uh, he has a type of illness. Something's transpired here. And Julius does something very unusual. I doubt they've had much time to make friends, and commanders don't usually hang out with prisoners. Uh, they may have spoken. We don't know. 
But what's likely, again, is Festus is involved here. So it's likely that Festus has, again, given a good word, says, look, this guy's innocent, really. I'm in a, I'm in a political issue here, so I've got I've to let him go. Uh, I can't just turn him free. I've got to send him to Rome. You know, I, gotta, I have to look good. So I've got to cover my backside, but uh, he's innocent. This guy's going to do you no harm. So I think Festus may have set these things up because Paul's getting treated unusually well. And that probably came from Festus, is, is my opinion. Nonetheless, this unique thing happens here. So they, so they, they dock, and Paul's allowed to go in. Now, um, he's going to visit friends. Really, that, so what that is, as other Christians, right? He's going to see other Christians. Now, this is Phoenicia, and it's the area there. Remember what back in the beginning of Acts, when the gospel was, being, was going to spread out, that was the promise that we see the Holy Spirit promised there in the Scripture. The gospel is going to spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. So now this is that Samaria region as they're going up the coast of Asia Minor. So this is Phoenicia, and the churches have been planted there. You remember when? So when, when, the, when uh, the, the Christians there were beginning to first be persecuted there in Jerusalem, what sparked all that? Do you remember? <coughs> Excuse me. Someone was martyred. Stephen, remember? The martyrdom of Stephen. And who was there? Who was the primary point persecutor in that martyrdom? That was our old buddy Paul, right? Then Saul. So here we are, Paul back now visiting these churches, and he had been there before, on his way in, uh, uh, going into Jerusalem. Um, this last time, this last trip over, which brought him to Jerusalem, he visited there. So he's going back. He's certainly going to teach and do what he can there, but they're also going to minister to his needs. He has some kind of physical needs, and they're going to minister and care for him. So there's a beautiful little picture here, <coughs> and Julius is very much a part of that. So this is just, again, the mercies of God uh, allowing this to transpire. And we see the irony there. Now Paul going back and meeting with these churches that were planted because of the persecution there that broke out after the martyrdom of Stephen, which Paul had very much firsthand um, a part in, in that role. So he receives care. He's refreshed. I'm sure he encouraged them and they encouraged him as well. And then we look at verse 4. It says, from there, we put out the sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. Now, normally, they would just track right along Asia Minor and go above or, or, or go out under Cyprus and out to the tip of Asia Minor where they could sail across the Mediterranean Sea. We all do this way, but they could sail across the Mediterranean Sea. Instead, they skirt between Asia Minor and Cyprus for protection. The, the waters are narrowed, and there's protection from the wind. And they get a little, a little wind off of the land, and it can move them forward because the wind was contrary to them, and they could not take the normal route. So they're going to continue to skirt along the coastline there. The winds were contrary, so they couldn't tack westwardly. They would be pushed back, pushed back. So they catch a little a break there and go above Cyprus, between Cyprus and Asia Minor, and take, and take that little upper route. Verse 5, when we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. Now, that's just a little port kind of halfway up into Asia Minor. But there, it was a strategic port because there in verse 6, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and we put him aboard. So in that port, we're still, we're, just, we're, we're still in Asia Minor there. In that port, they could now change ships. They could find a larger ship. That was the whole plan to begin with. So now that part of the plan is being accomplished. They're able to board the larger uh, grain vessel, which, again, these are ships that would go down to northern Africa there in Egypt, and Egypt was really the, the um, food source for most of the Roman Empire. There was a lot of grain there. So it was very common to take a grain ship there from Alexandria, and then they would carry these to various parts of the Roman Empire. And this was a main port for one of those larger ships. So now uh, the centurion, his soldiers, the whole crew, Paul, the prisoners, all of them, now will transport over to the larger vessel 
that can now be more of a sea-bearing vessel, and they can try to make the voyage out beyond just skirting the coastline. So they board there, and in verse 7 it says, While we had sailed slowly for a good many days, with difficulty we arrived off Nidus. Now they're kind of at a jetty, right at the end of Asia Minor. So now they're ready to to, uh, set sail uh, across the Mediterranean. Verse 9. So this, is, this has gotten to the point there. And now they've got to make a decision. They're facing time issues here. And fierce winter winds could be a problem. So the providence of God, again, is going to be on display for us here. So here's the voyage. But now we've come to a, a kind of moment of truth. And now we're going to see Paul's advice because now they got to make some decisions. We're at the right of the jetty. Are they going to cross or are they going to do something else? Verse nine. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast uh, was already over, Paul began to admonish them. So what's being said here? Well, That, that language, the fast there, they're speaking about the Day of Atonement. When the Day of Atonement falls for us, either say, for us counting our calendar, we're looking at September or mid-October. For them, it's always the 10th day of the seventh month, and that's Tishra. And that's a lunar calendar. In this year that we're looking at here, which is AD 59, because we know when Festus went in, we know the year he went in, and it was around August. By the time Paul was up, uh, uh, met before Festus, met before the king, and was finally sent uh, on this voyage, you're probably looking at September. At this point, we're into October. And the Day of Atonement would have fallen on October the 5th of that year, AD 59. So now the time is a very dangerous time to be at sea. The winds are unpredictable. So from end of September to mid-October, early November, uh, it's possible to travel, but it could be dangerous. It could could get bad quickly. Past uh, November, December, January, nobody sails there. It's impossible. So there's a window, but it could be a very risky window now. So it's a dangerous time to sell. It's a great risk. And Paul's going to say to them, don't do it. So he began to admonish them. And in verse 10, this is what he says. Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only uh, of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. So he's basically saying, look, y'all fixing to kill us. Don't do this. Now, this, now, again, this is not Paul hearing from the Lord directly. This is just Paul's perception. This is what Paul believes, just looking at the issue and having some experience on the sea. He's giving them his advice. This is what Paul believes will transpire. He's using his common sense, his insight, his pers- and his personal experience. This is not revelation from God. This is Paul Speaking from experience, listen to 2 Corinthians eleven twenty five. Three times I was beaten with rods. This is Paul speaking of, uh, of uh, some of his journeys. Once I was stoned, and here we go, three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I have spent in the deep. So he's already had a couple of these. And he's been right here before. So now he's not a sailor. And, of course, their response, we're going to see that they recognize he's not a sailor and they just pretty much blow him off. But Paul tells them out of his intuition, his personal experience, look, don't do this, man. You're going to kill us. Now, it's interesting because what's always in the back of Paul's mind? What does he know? He's got kind of an ace in the hole, if you will. What does he know beyond a shadow of a doubt? He's going. Jesus the resurrected Christ met with Paul personally and told him what? You will testify of me in Rome. You're going to Rome. So however this shakes out, there's something that in the back of Paul's mind 
he's going wrong. But he's not certain about everything else, right? And so he says, like, look, y'all, you know, you could die. Don't do it. Right? But what do they do? Well, let's look here. Verse 10. So he tells them, he says, look, this could even cost you our lives. Verse 11, but the centurion, that's Julius, is again uh, uh, mindful of Paul here and, and has been very good to him. He was, but he was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain. So the best, these are hard to translate these two terms, pilot and captain. The best uh, uh, that I've looked at with other commentators and uh, come up with is pilot may just be what we would look at as the captain of the ship. We might call the captain of the ship the one who is steering the ship. Sometimes we refer to that as the captain in our culture. Uh, that's probably who's being referred to here as the pilot, and I guess that could translate in our minds. That would make sense to us. But then the captain is going to be what we might think of as the owner of the ship or a representative of the owner. Now, these vessels were often privately owned, and the and Rome would just, uh, you know, so Rome would pay. Uh, so this is just, a, so it's often these ships are privately owned. So this doesn't, it's not a fleet that belongs to Rome or, or the military, but what they would do was use them. And so they would they would pay these um, these private owners of these ships. Again, mostly Alexandrian ships. That was where they got the grain. So that's probably a, a, the owner the, the owner of the ship, or at least a representative of the owner, someone who has a monetary investment in this matter. So the pilot and the captain have a monetary investment. So that's motivating them. Now, they were persuaded, the centurions, he was persuaded by the pilot and the captain. And they didn't listen to Paul. Why? Verse 12, because the harbor was not suitable for wintering. So that harbor there, where they are now, was not suitable. It's a bad place. The Fair Haven is a, a, a bad place to harbor. Their ship would be battered around by the storm. Probably they could it could take damage. It could, it could sink, uh, and they don't want to. They don't want to run the risk of losing the monetary investment they have in getting this ship to Italy. So they say, you know, we're going to try to work our way around Crete, get on the backside of Crete, and then see if we can work our way out to an, a, a westward harbor, which is going to be Phoenix, and that's a better harbor, and we could hold there for the winter. So that's their plan. So they've sheltered a bit here when they had sailed. They've arrived at, at Nidus. And then they could they can't go any farther. So they've been pushed southwest, now under Crete off Simone. And the island of Crete, by the way, has a large, large mountain, about 8,000 feet high. And when the storms come up, the wind just whips off this mountain. So if they try to leave, the, they've now found their way around the bottom side of Crete. They can find shelter from the wind. And, um, you know, so now they're trying to figure out if they're going to try it or not. They're going to take the risk to go on that. Just to get around a little further to a harbor called Phoenix, which is a much safer harbor than they can winter there. But it's dangerous. It's a dangerous time. If they even pull out of there, they could be in lots of trouble. So they don't want to stay at Fairhaven. And so some time has passed there. We're probably looking at three months now. Again, so we're into, if we look back and we can, we can time this out, we're into October. And this is very risky. But the centurion is going to make the move. He's persuaded by the pilot and the captain. They don't want to harbor there. They, they, they talked to the majority of, uh, I, I don't know who was included in the majority here, but I guess some of the other uh, leaders among the soldiers, uh, maybe some of the other the, the crew, uh, the sailing crew, and they made a decision in verse 12, and they put out the sea. Now, somehow they might be able to reach Phoenix. Now, this is a harbor off of Crete. Again, the very westward tip of Crete, a much better harbor, and the ship would be far safer in terms of being battered in the harbor and possibly sink so uh, they could winter there. So that's the, that's the plan. In verse 13, a moderate south wind came up, supposing 
that they had attained their purpose. So that's what they needed. A south wind could just nice. They could just sail out. That pushed them right along, pushed them westward uh, for you this way. I'm sorry, pushed them westward. And that would bring them right to the next harbor to Phoenix there. So they have that. They have what they think is, is going to work here. So the south wind, a nice gentle breeze comes up. They pull anchor and they begin to sail along the creek close to the shore. Everything looks good, right? Now, I want you to see here, just be reminded again, the providence of God is on display. So this is a perfect wind to start. It look good. And just, it's not, it's not far. So this is not very far. It's to about, uh, just, just uh, you know, we're looking 20 some miles to get out to Phoenix. And then they're set. They can winter there and everything will be good. So the providence of God has brought them this far, but they, they, they make this decision. And now they're going to get Paul's uh, real response here. They're going to see his confession. And so here we find that nice little four-letter word, or excuse me, three-letter word there in uh, verse 14. But, But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Uraquila. Now, Uraquila is, for us, what we might think of as a nor'easter. And for them, the wind is blowing exactly so contrary. Usually, the wind would be blowing, uh, for for them, uh, westward, a a westward wind, carry them out west, and and a southern wind. So they're hiding under Crete, and they have a a nice southern breeze blowing them out, which is going to be nice to push them to Phoenix. But at this time of year, nor'easters can come out of virtually nowhere. A nor'easter is going to be a north wind and an eastern wind, which will push them violently south towards the top rim of Africa. That's exactly what they're going to see. This uh, Uraquilo is a nor'easter. So this is a hurricane force wind. So they pull out into a nice southern breeze and rapidly they fly into the face of a violent hurricane. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it. So they, they couldn't steer. They couldn't do anything. They just had to let it go. <clears throat> and so we let themselves be driven along and running under the shelter. Of a, they ran under the shelter of a small island called Claudia. Now, that's about 23 miles just south. That's south of where they were at Fairhaven. So it's just pushed them directly south. And what they've done there is now they've come around the bottom side of Claudia and tried to take shelter there. So they bind themselves a little bit of time to try to do some things to, to kind of bolster the ship and then try to avoid continuing being pushed down further into the rim of uh, Africa. So verse 16, running under the shelter of a small island called Claudium, they were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. Now, the ship's boat is uh, the lifeboat, so the dinghy. And typically, they would just have it tied on a rope out the bow, and it would just float along behind. Uh, probably it's taking water in the storm. So uh, once they get underneath this island, they can get blocked a little bit of blockage from the wind. And so they're going to try to get the dinghy in, bring it in, kind of get the, you know, get it up, get it aboard, save it. And then, uh, verse 17, they hoist it up. So that's, that's the lifeboat. That's the dinghy. And then it says they, they use supporting cables to undergird the ship, fearing that it might run aground on the shallows of, of, uh, of, Sar- of Sartus. Now, that's, long, that's the shallows of Sartus is long sandbars along the northern rim of, of uh, Africa. And so what will happen, those ships get, continue to get pushed down by these storms, and then they'll ground themselves on these sandbars and be destroyed, smashed into pieces, and everybody will die. So that's what they're trying to avoid. So this um, using of the cables or uh, to undergird the ship, this was a concept that was common in that time, and it was called frapping the ship. 
So what they would do, they would take heavy ropes or cables and they would pass them under the bow of the ship and then tighten them. Then they would bring them under and over the, the ship and secure them transversely like this. So they bring them under the bow, both sides, and then they would secure them transversely. So it's kind of it's kind of like taping the ship up. Uh, and again, so they didn't have rivets or bolts. So you know they're trying to hold these planks to the ribs of the ship, the inner workings of the ship. So that's what they were doing. So they frap the ship, uh, they get the dinghy in, and then again, all fear, all trying to avoid being shipwrecked just off the northern coast of, of uh, excuse me, the, the top rim of, of Africa, the, the northern coast. So they let down the sea anchor. Now, this is, again, something that's hard to translate. It looks for us just like they let down the anchor, and that possibly could be the case, but uh, not necessarily. They're, they're still trying to steer to avoid this. So probably what that means is they let down the mass quite a bit so that they could try to control it some way. So they, 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 they bring down the mass uh, to, a, very, to, to a, great, a great degree and still try to maintain some semblance of controlling the ship. And then they just allow themselves to be driven along. What else could they do? Verse 18, the next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison cargo. So now they're throwing everything that they can over, overboard. Anything they can do to lighten the load. Verse 19, on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So now they're trying to get rid of everything to lighten the load. So don't capsize by the storm. Verse 20, since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. So now they're at the hopeless stage. They're tossing cargo like crazy. They're tossing out the tackle. And again, night and day for the cloud cover, for the storm, they can't see. It's dark. The clouds have just ascended on them. So what can they not do at night? Which they could have done if there wasn't a storm just hovering over them. They could see what? They could see the stars and they could navigate. Now they can't navigate. They can't navigate by day. They can't navigate by night or even attempt to. So they're, they're lost in this fog of a storm that's whirling them about continually day after day. And at this, there, there's some point that all hope is lost. Verse 21. They've gone a long time without food. Now, why? Well, there's certainly, there's certainly a shortage of food, I'm sure, by this point. But why else? Anybody ever been seasick? That's a bad deal. Now they've been tossed about day and night, day and night. So they're seasick. They're working just to try to manage the ships. So they're working away. They're seasick. They're frightened. They're in despair. And they haven't eaten. I'm sure there's some notion of rationing, but they haven't eaten. So... They're just, they're just continually painting this long picture. Again, and this is tough for us in our time because we're, very, we're used to sound bites and quick things. This is a long narrative, but they're painting a picture for a serious climax. It's at this point, when they're without food, they're without hope, they're seasick, they're fearful, they're, 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 they're anxious. They probably have little appetite, but their bellies hurt. They're working to fight the storm. They're wet, they're tired, they're hungry, they're hopeless. No sun, no stars. But at this time, God takes his man and stands him up to leave. And this is a very vivid picture for us. And the allegory is there. There's always storms in our life, right? And there's always storms around us. And there's always storms in the lives of those that God has put in our lives for us to be a light a beacon before them. And this is the moment for Paul. And Paul's here set before us as an example of pristine Christianity. There's despair and darkness and hopelessness in the midst of a serious storm. There are grown men that are fearful and in despair. Hover under darkness. 
And then God sends his man of light to step up and lead. Christians always lead. You're going to lead in circumstances of life. And oftentimes it may be where those around you are in despair. And you have to be in the midst of that to really be with them, to lead them to light. Are you connecting the dots? Watch Paul here. This is application for us. Now Now we do application. That was a long journey, wasn't it? I know, I, I know that was hard and tedious for you. I know. I'm sorry. I don't know what else to do with this text. Now we're to application. This is where Paul is used to fill us up because this is us all the time. You have to see that. This is us all the time. This is what we long to be. This is what we're praying for God or to make us like this, like Paul, all the time. These storms are all around you your family, your friends, your co-workers, intimate relationships that you have amongst all those uh, uh, people in your life. And the heart is to be broken, broken and contrite for them and willing to put yourself in the fire with them to be light. So verse 21, Paul stood up in their midst and said, men, You ought to have followed my advice and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Now, that's important. He told them, right? And he's letting them know. He's reminding them here, but this is a gentle reminder. This is not a, (laughs) told you so. Never listen to me. Look look, Look at you. Look what you get. You deserve it. It's not what's been said. Now, some, that could, sometimes this is what we want to uh, be aware of with us. You deserve it. It's so easy to say, isn't it? I told you. I've shared the gospel with you a n- numerous times. I told you. You deserve what you get. My goodness, sometimes my heart feels that way to my children. Oh, how we need to have God continually go over and over us again and again. Wash us over again and again and again. Their hearts are tender. Tender. Paul's going through this, but he's willing to sacrifice. And he stands to tell him, so he reminds him to validate himself. I told you, and there's a reason I told you, because look, now here's where the rubber is the road for us. Here's where we need to kind of tune in to not 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 stretch scripture here, but we need to just tune in to, to reality of the situation. How do you think he's lived with them? Had a long time here, just months. Months at sea, always in a bad way. Most part in a bad way. Months now waiting at Crete. And he's a prisoner. How do you think he's been interacting with them all this time? This is not, by the way, I, I can't say for sure, but I would, I would say this is my opinion. This is not the first time Paul's spoken of the gospel on this voyage. But he's got, he's got a platform now to get it to everybody. How do you think he's living? See, we have to be, Paul's lived a certain way here that we don't really get to, we don't really get to hear about that. That's in the background. How does Paul, we know Paul, right? How does he live with people? He's sacrificing. He's serving. He's loving. He longs to see them saved. He's communicating the gospel all the time. He can't hold him back. He's sick and he went to see his friends. Sure, they ministered to him, but he's sharing the gospel with them. He's encouraging them. So you got to, you got to, an opportunity here, but know this. We have to know this. This man's life has backed up what he's about to say, okay? He's been with them in the fire. And now God's given him this moment. He's given him this moment. So he lets them know. I told you, and there's a reason I told you. And you know how I've lived amongst you. Now we have an opportunity to have some real life shed upon this situation. Verse 22, you know, uh, yet now I urge you, excuse me, verse 22, yet now I urge you to keep up your courage. Be of good courage. Now that's boldness because everything around them says no. And when you carry the gospel light to your family, your extended family, your children, your friends, your co-workers, everything around them is going to say no. 
Everything around us will say, we're not going to hear creation. We're not going to hear a, a, a unique God-man that has died in a toning, sacrificial, substitutionary death on the cross. Come on, man. you got to follow the science. That can never dictate to us. That's a circumstance. Here's the heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Keep up your courage. And everything around them says, <laughs> what? That's exactly what Paul was told. That's exactly what he communicates. Keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you. Okay, well, now listen. Well, listen, it goes on. But, look, this is the issue of faith. But, only the ship. You're not going to die. But in the storm, the ship's going to be taken out from under you. Well, that's, that's comforting. Okay, we're going to lose the ship. But you're not going to be die. Take courage. Now, that sounds like a crazy man on the surface. But this is a man who is living by faith. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Now, Paul knows that, but here's the rest of it. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Wow. Wow. So, hey, look. Take courage. We're going to lose the ship. You're going to be all washed in a storm. But an angel of my God has appeared to me. The God whom I, to whom I belong and the God to whom I serve. And that's very interesting language that's translated into English. So that's not the God of whom I belong to in terms of that, the one who created me. Certainly that's true. But that's not how Paul's speaking here. He's saying this is an angel from the God who I have intimate relationship with and whom I worship. So that's what's translated there, serve, is really a, a, a term that really speaks of worship. So an angel from the God whom I have intimate relationship through with the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning death on my behalf and is the God that I worship sent an angel to me to tell you, to remind me, to tell you that I've got to be, I had an appointment with Caesar that he has set sovereignly. And so I'll be there. But here's the good news for you. Listen to the language. Here it is. Behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Now that's interesting language, isn't it? How did God, why did God grant all of those to Paul who have been sailing with him? What does he mean? I'm going to grant them to you. Has Paul been praying for them? Why is God granting them to Paul? What is that? You think you've been praying for them? You think you've been asking God to spare their lives? You think you've been asking God to give him this platform? He's going to Rome. Paul's never had that in doubt. And now an angel spoke to him and said, They're gonna, you're going to lose the ship, Paul. you got to tell them that but I'm going to spare them all out. God has worked through a means of prayer, which he has promised. And right here, we see it actively going on in this passage. Paul has prayed. And God here, who is one eternal now, nothing has changed in the mind of a sovereign God. But in this moment, Paul knows that God has heard his prayer. And Paul's answer for Paul as he lives his life out in space and time in this perilous moment is I've granted them to you. In your obedience, in your faithfulness, in your testimony, in your witness, as my worshiper, I've granted them to you. How about that? So Paul says, do not be afraid. I'm going to Rome. <laughs> You're going with me. Therefore, keep up your courage, men. Why? For I believe that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. That's faith. I believe it. God has told me, and the God whom I serve has told me, and I believe it. 
It's going to happen. This is what's going to transpire. So the man longs to see them come to Christ. He longs to communicate the gospel to them. But we must run aground on a certain island. Now, that's going to be Malta. And the odds of that happening is astronomical. As you're looking at guys, the ship's going to go out for money. And they're all going to be spared on this one little tiny island out in the middle of nowhere, south of Sicily. Millions to one. That's the sovereignty of God. And Paul's telling them exactly what's going to happen. And it happens. Now, when he's telling them this, one or two things, right? Again, I know Paul has a unique situation here. The angel of the Lord is not necessarily going to meet with us. We have something much more easier to work with. We have scripture. We're not waiting on that moment. We can look back and see everything that God does in our lives as the Holy Spirit indwells us and uses us to step up and lead to be light, gospel light to those around us in the most perilous of times. But here's what's true. Now, they were, they were going to hit that island. That was going to happen or what? That's, either, that's a yes or a no, isn't it? Either gonna, that's either going to transpire or it's going to not. It's either going to be true or false. Now, Paul knows it's going to be true. They find out it's going to be true. And we look back and it's God's word that he's preserved for us and we know it's going to be true. So what we take from this in terms of application for us is this is true for us. What do I mean? In every circumstance of your life, as long as you're here as God's witness on this earth, through difficult times, perilous times, dangerous times, calm times, uh, uh, unpredictable times, your God will help you. Paul met with his God, his intimate God, whom he worships. Our end is simply this, obedience and willingness to sacrifice. Obedience to our calling to go forth and carry the gospel and willingness to sacrifice, willingness to trust, trust, obey, willingness to sacrifice. That's our participatory role in the intimate relationship with our God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the circumstances do not matter. It's your trust that matters. So what happens here is what happens for us. As we trust the Lord, we know he's going to help us. He's going to help you in every situation of life that you stand to be light to those around you. He will help you. He will be there and he will see you through to be faithful and obedient to him. Your heart just needs to be there. You have a participatory part that your heart says, yes, here I am, Lord, send me. And you know he will see you through. He will help you. He will help you to go forth and be light until he's finished with you. God's not finished with Paul yet, so he's going to drift him with a whole bunch of sailors and prisoners all the way to this obscure island and spare them all out just because he's, it's because he told Paul he's going to. So you're not done with Paul. He's not finished with you. When he's finished with you, you'll be in, a, you'll be in glory forever with your Lord. But until he's finished with you, you're literally bulletproof. Be of good courage. Have no fear. Go forth, trust him, and obey him. And carry the light of the gospel. Be encouraged. Be like Paul. Submission and obedience. Look, here's what Paul knew. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Language from Paul here. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, Glorify God in your body. Now, we just see Paul living that out right here. Exactly what he has preached to the Corinthians. You're not your own. If you're here and you're a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price, the blood of Christ. So your part is submission and obedience. And know that God will help you. Until he's finished with you, you're bulletproof. 
have a heart for the lost and hear your Lord grant you the lost around you. Have a heart for them. Be willing to sacrifice for them. There's a duty of intercession that we have. There's a duty that belongs to us to pray for all those that God has put in our lives and be ready to be in distress and be ready to sacrifice for them for that time that we too may be much like in their lives. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for um, this text, this arduous voyage, um, ultimately culminating in you taking your man at your precise sovereign time and placing him as light in the lives of the lost around him. How good you are, how glorious you are. Thank you for such a testimony and witness to us. May we uh, knit it deeply into our hearts and may you too um, continue to strengthen us. Oh, how we need you. Uh, that we too might be light to those you've placed in our lives. And that we might be burdened and encouraged uh, to intercede for those all around us as we see so true here in Paul. Uh, although it's um, by way of implication. Um, encourage our hearts that we might know you more fully and that our lives might be lived out to the fullest for your glory and for our good. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.